Okay, the readings from 1 John, verses 1 to 4. The word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for this remarkable letter. Uh, thank you for the ways in which it will speak to us. And thank you that we don't simply read it uh, on our own, that we read uh, your word uh, in company with your Holy Spirit, the one who breathed life into these words in the first place. So please, will you breathe life and health and healthy relationships into us as we hear your word? And please even use my words to uh, unpack what these might mean for us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's a beautiful book, uh, 1 John. Uh, we think, as far as we can tell, written by the same person who wrote John's Gospel. Um, certainly the earliest sort of testimony to uh, the writer of this testified that this was John the Apostle, the, the friend whom Jesus loved, uh, the one that Jesus uh, had alongside him amongst the 12 apostles. And uh, uh, we think, therefore, that this book was written maybe 10 years after the Gospel of John, somewhere right at the end of the very first century uh, of uh, AD, as it were. And uh, it is a book of um, passion uh, and of, uh, full of Jesus, uh, full of life and love. Uh, we think probably uh, more like a sermon written down than uh, an epistle, a letter. 2 John and 3 John read more like a, you know, dear so-and-so, love so-and-so. This one has more of the feel of a sort of a homily or a sermon written down. And it was written into a community that had got themselves in a muddle and a mess over why we exist. Uh, in that second song that we sang this morning, there was that line that said, unveil why we're made. Well, for the people that John was writing to, the why we're made question was being answered by a whole bunch of people over here who had a very, very particular angle on it. And it involved saying to you, I can tell you why we're made. I have an inside track on that knowledge and I'm going to let you in on it. And together we're going to discover the truth. There's going to be this knowledge of uh, God, small g, capital G, whatever, uh, this knowledge of spirituality. And if you get this knowledge for yourself, you will know why you're made. There's a secret, and I've got the secret. And if you come over here and be with me, be in fellowship with me, being alongside me, then I'm going to let you in on that secret. John wanted to say to them, don't be misled. Don't be led off course. There is no secret because God has unveiled the truth. And it isn't a secret that one individual or one little group has. God has given himself to the whole world. This is something to be proclaimed from the rooftops. This is something for everybody to have. The secret of why we're made is not fellowship 
with a little group of people, but is fellowship with God himself. Verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, there are lots of different understandings of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be religious, what it means to be a person of faith uh, today. And they take lots of different forms. For many people, religion is about something that you believe a set of beliefs, a set of truths, a set of theological outlooks, an approach to life, a way of thinking, um, as if we simply are going into Waterstones or going online to Amazon, depending on where you buy your books, um, and walking our way along a shelf full of different ideas and going, hmm, I think I'm going to believe that. A sort of choice of approach, an outlook, a worldview, uh, a, a way of thinking. For other people, uh, religion, the Christian faith, is more of a lifestyle choice. In other words, it takes it a step further. It says, well, it's not just what you believe about something, it's what you do about it. Uh, a bit more like becoming a vegan, saying, I believe that we shouldn't eat such things, therefore, this is my lifestyle choice, and this is going to be uh, how I'm defined. So, in that way, uh, to be a Christian is to have particular strong beliefs about particular moral rights and wrongs and to live out what gets called a Christian lifestyle. And I've often said to you, one of the very first things often people will say to me is they're talking about maybe somebody uh, that they love uh, who's maybe either very sick or maybe um, somebody who's died is they want to say to me they were a really Christian person. By which they mean, often, usually, they lived a Christian lifestyle. They lived a nice way, a good way. A belief, a lifestyle. Or, or for many people, the Christian faith, be, being religious, is about something you belong to, a community. As if it's a club you join. Um, we've be suddenly become aware of the fact that there is a community you get to belong to when you get a dog, which I hadn't really realised existed at all. Um, I, I, we had our... I had my very first celebrity dog walking um, uh, uh, meeting. I'm not going to say who, because that would be unfair. But I found myself, actually, Stephen and I had taken uh, Rodeo out for a walk on, on the old deer park. Um, I think it was Friday afternoon. And uh, we found ourselves talking to an extremely famous um, actress. Um, Stephen didn't, didn't have a clue. Um, who she was, so clearly only famous for middle-aged people like me. Um, but uh, actually, when I said to him what she'd been in afterwards, he went, oh, really? Um, but there is this sort of community, and we, you know, we had this thing in common. We were talking about you know, our, my, our puppy and her dog, and, and, and suddenly you sort of thought, oh, we, we're, we're in a club. You own a dog, and suddenly you've joined this club, this community you're part of. And for many people, that's the, our way in to this community of faith. We belong to something. People come to church often looking for somewhere to belong. And it, it's actually rather good. It's a nice place. That's a good thing. And don't get me wrong. A thing to believe, a lifestyle to live, and a community to belong to absolutely are parts of what it means to be a Christian. I'm not about to try and blow them all out of the water and say, don't be ridiculous, they're all wrong. But I want to suggest that what we've been thinking about over this term is we've been thinking about identity and if we listen to what John is saying here about fellowship, that if you like, our belief system, the way we live and the community we belong to are symptoms, 
nice, good symptoms of something much deeper, much more fundamental, much richer, much more important than any of those things. Because actually the Bible would say you can believe a whole load of stuff, but still not be right with God. The Bible would say that you can live a really good-looking lifestyle and still not be right with God. The Bible says that you can belong thoroughly to and really contribute to the community of faith and still not be right with God. And the language that John uses here is the language of fellowship. Now, I grew up in the 1970s. I know, it's hard to believe. And um, in the 1970s and early 80s, if you were part of the Christian church, everything revolved around the word fellowship. Uh, we used to talk about fellowship suppers. I, I, I hope there were one or two, yeah, there's one or two nods here, okay. Um, we used to talk about fellowship suppers, fellowship groups. If you were really, really cool and trendy, it's worrying that I'm using those words in this context. If you're really cool and trendy, you didn't talk about fellowship, you talked about the Greek word for fellowship, which is what John writes here, koinonia. So the, the, the young adults group at the church I grew up in as a child was called koinonia. Very cool. They didn't write it in Greek, but anyway. Um, uh, it was all about fellowship. The, the, the problem is that um, fellowship then became associated with the caricature of well-meaning nice people drinking slightly lukewarm, not very well-made tea out of green chipped china cups. It was a sort of weak word, a bit like our national drink. It was a sort of thing that we did nice, being nice to people, having fellowship together. Let's have some fellowship. It was a sort of warm hug of a word. And now we all like warm hugs. That's not a problem. The problem is that when John uses the word fellowship, it's a legal, it's a business, it's a partnership word that is far stronger, far richer, far deeper, and actually has far more implications for us than the word that we'd end, the way we'd ended up using it in the 1970s and 80s. Now, you might not have my particular baggage and hang up with it, but still fellowship doesn't mean a lot to many people. Today, we tend to use it in very small contexts. Occasionally, we'll talk about the fellowship of the Royal Academy of something or other. When John uses it, he uses it like this. In his day, the word was most often used to describe a legally binding association between equal partners based on a mutual assent towards a common purpose. Let me unpack that for a moment. If you were going into business with somebody, then you were going into koinonia with them in John's world. So let's say Russell and I decided to start a business together. He'd be mad to go in, but you know, with me. But the fact is, it would be based on this. It would be based on mutuality, something we did together. It would be based in those days on equal partnership. I've got something to bring. He's got something to bring. It would be all about having a common purpose. Saying, right, this is the business we're going to do. This is what we're bringing to it. It's legally binding. We're throwing our lot in together, and we're going to do this together, and we're going to achieve something together. Russell's looking quite worried. It's okay. Um, the fact is, in John's day, it would have been more like, um, let's buy a boat together and we'll form a fishing cooperative. That would have been the sort of idea. You throw your lot in together. You've got a common purpose. You say, right, we're going to do this together. You're equal partners. You've both got something to provide. And you decide, we're going to act on this together. Now, of course, if you're in fellowship with somebody, it meant that you couldn't do certain things. You couldn't then be in fellowship with somebody else. That was important. It was just you and them. You're in together. Unless somebody else wanted to join your fellowship. But you couldn't be in fellowship with somebody over here and in fellowship with a rival over here. 
you're all a fellowship together. The second was that there was a sense of, of mutuality and a sense of partnership and equality. So you, it wasn't like you'd seen Dragon's Den. Yeah, it wasn't like Dragon's Den where you're, you're trying to get somebody to, to, to come in with you, but they're very clearly not an equal partner. You know, they get to call the shots, they get to sort of pull the plug. I mean, it, it was very much more equal than that. But most of all, you couldn't go into fellowship with somebody and then walk away and not see them for 20 years. You did stuff together. That was the whole point. You went fishing together, or you made carpentry together, or you, um, you kept goats together. You did stuff together. Is it not entirely outrageous, therefore, that John would say, you and I get to have fellowship with God? Just put the pieces together for a moment. The implication is, somehow, that God and I have something in common. This is the maker of the universe. This is the maker of space and time. This is the infinite one who sits on the throne of all matter and all being. He says, you get to be in fellowship with God. You get to be in some sort of equal partnership with God. How is that possible? What have I got to offer God? What? And then he's saying, therefore, you must have something in common. There must be a common purpose. And more than that, you then get to go into business with God, live life with God as a partner in life with God. Do you see how outrageous this implication is? We think of it as a very weak word, you know, lukewarm tea out of green chipped cups, the warm hug of fellowship together. Actually saying you are in business with God. You are partners with him, partners in life. And then to really drive it home, to really show us, to remind us that this isn't just about an ac acquiescent to a set of beliefs or a simple sort of saying, I'm just going to live life a particular way. He wants us to remember that this is about partnership with someone, not acquiescence to something. This isn't a belief system or a lifestyle or simply a religion to belong to. This is partnership with someone. And that's why verses 1 and 2 are so important. That which, we have, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our eyes have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And then at one verse later he reveals that, who that is. His Son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't simply say to us, I want you to believe a whole load of things, then you'll be fine. Nor does he say to us, I want you simply to follow a particular lifestyle and then everything's okay. Nor does he simply say to us, I want you to belong to this nice warm hug of a fellowship. He says to us, I'm giving you myself in the person of Jesus Christ. Go into business with him. Go into partnership with him. Have fellowship with him. But even more than that, it isn't just something I do as an individual, me and God. We've got to be very careful about that, haven't we? In our culture, in our day, it, religion is definitely something I do on my own. Not something to be talked about at dinner parties, not something to be talked about in public. It's very much something that's me and God. If I even get as far as religion, it's definitely personal. It's just me. John will have none of it. He actually says, so that you may have fellowship with us, and then together with us, fellowship with the Father and the Son. In other words, it is about belonging, it is about being together, but it's about recognising that if I'm in fellowship with you and in fellowship with you, 
That's only because together we are in fellowship with the God whom we know in Jesus Christ. We're in it together. We're partners in business. We've thrown in our lot together. We may not always like one another. We may not always get on with one another. I think mostly we do. But that's not really the point. Actually, the point is that together we've thrown in our lot with the God who's made us and in Jesus has given everything for us. And what's the outcome? What's he aiming for? Well, it's very clear in what John writes that he's not simply aiming for a society, a club, uh, an organisation that simply keeps itself going. This isn't about uh, some sort of community group that exists to sustain itself. There is a purpose. And the purpose is not the one we'd think. Verse 4. We make this, we write this to make our, and some versions of the manuscript say your, could be either, joy complete. There is a purpose to fellowship with God that is not the one we usually associate with religion. Not the one, sadly, that we usually associate with church. Not the one that we usually associate with a good lifestyle or right belief but it is the one that the Bible comes back to again and again and again, from the first page to its last page. What it says is that what God wants for us is joy. Joy is not simply being happy. There are plenty of reasons in life why we aren't feeling happy. The Bible doesn't say, you should go around with a happy smile on your face all the time, whistling a cheery tune because life's always good. The Bible is full of lamentation. The Bible is full of, of, of weeping and wailing and of yelling and of anger and of sadness and of disappointment. But in the midst of it all, it says what we are designed for is joy. Because what joy is, the knowledge of what we are made for. Unveil why we are made. Joy comes from knowing who you are. Joy comes from knowing that you're loved. Joy comes from knowing that your life has purpose and meaning and an end that is in God's hands. Joy comes from being known. Joy is what we're made for. And joy won't come by just believing the right stuff. Joy won't come from living the right way. Joy won't come from belonging even to this church. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Joy will only come by fellowship, going into partnership with God, simply saying to God, I want my life to be lived with you and with your people. I want to be in partnership with you. So what I do on Monday morning in my job or in my parenting or in my friendships or in my community will bring joy if it is lived in partnership with God. If you can start each day saying to your Heavenly Father, what shall we do today? That's where joy comes from. What shall we do today? It's my one challenge for you and for me this week. What would change if you started every day looking, if you like, metaphorically up to your partner, to your fellowship partner in heaven and saying to God, the God whom we know in Jesus, what shall we do today? That one decision at the beginning of every day infuses 
everything we do. The stuff that nobody will see and the stuff everybody sees. The stuff that is drudge and mundane, the stuff that is spectacular and life-changing. It infuses everything with the joy of knowing that we're not alone, that life has purpose, that life has meaning, that we are doing something with the God who's made us and loves us. Communion is called often uh, in many branches of the church the fellowship meal. And sometimes that simply becomes a, it's a thing we do together. It's a warm hug of a thing. Well, it is, but it's far more than that. This meal is about saying God threw in his entire lot with us by giving himself in Jesus on the cross. He didn't just invest a thousand pounds, 10,000 pounds, 5% of his wealth, 10% of his wealth. He invested the whole of himself in us in order to go into partnership with us. And as I eat and as I drink in remembrance of him, I am simply saying to God, I am going to throw in my lot with you. What shall we do together?